Welcome to TechnoViews, a new series of podcasts with major figures in the humanities and social sciences on topics at the intersection between techno science, culture, and society in Asia and the world. My name is Jun Jiang. I'm an assistant professor at City University of Hong Kong. In this podcast, it's our pleasure to have Dr. Lyle Ferney from Singapore University of Technology and Design. Dr. Furnies is an anthropologist of science and medicine. He recently published his book, Virulent Zones, Animal Disease and Global Health at China's Pandemic Epic Center, with Duke University Press in 2020. Welcome, Lyle, uh, today in joining us in our podcast. Well, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, thank you very much for the invitation. Um, I actually come across your work actually from a... Um, a sort of an article piece that you publish uh, on uh, the conversation. And when you talk about uh, shutdown, the wet market in China would be a terrible idea. And I look at that piece and I feel actually quite thrilled and thinking, well, finally, someone is talking about that issue. So uh, uh, because of that piece, I tracked uh, down your recent publications, the book um, about the influenza. I think your book wonderfully captures how complex it is to trace, to develop knowledge about, and to try to control zoonotic disease. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your book. Um, first of all, your book is about influenza. Um, what is influenza? And in what ways is influenza comparable to COVID-19 from the perspective of public health? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I guess influenza, um, very simply, is the disease that we normally call, like in English, the flu, or in Chinese, the ogan. And it's the, uh, you know, a very common disease that spreads almost every year. Um, and it's caused by a virus, which uh, is known as the influenza virus. And so... Um, however, the disease was known about before the virus that caused it was discovered. So there was um, influenza outbreaks and even influenza pandemics that were tracked from the 19th century into the early 20th century. Um, but the causative virus, now known as influenza virus, was only discovered in the 1930s. Um, one other very interesting aspect about influenza is this difference between influenza um, seasonal outbreaks and influenza pandemics. And so that's uh, um, something that epidemiologically in public health was noticed that in certain years, there would be a very widespread of, uh, of, of influenza across the whole world. So the most famous one, of course, being the 1918 to 1920 uh, flu pandemic, <clears throat> which killed uh, a very large number of people around the world. And um, so the just the one thing about that is what causes. So once there was the discovery of the virus that causes it, what they realized what causes um, influenza pandemics is a new strain. So it's a, a sort of a new um, variant strain of the flu virus, which would be one that the human population would not have any immunity to. And that's what enables it to spread so widely. 
So this is where we get into some of the ways that influenza is um, quite similar to, or has some similarities to the SARS coronavirus 2 that causes the COVID-19 disease and pandemic that we're experiencing right now. Um, so similar that they're both caused by viruses rather than um, bacteria is one important similarity. And another one being that they spread when, um, because it's a new virus or new strain that's um, uh, spreading in the, uh, into the human population. And then maybe I'll just add one more thing before I go on for too long, but that another key similarity that I talk about in my book is or, uh, the, that during the 1957 influenza pandemic, which was uh, uh, originated in, in China, uh, a, a Chinese virologist named Zhu Jiming um, actually sort of theorized or hypothesized that this new strain, for there to be such a large variation in the influenza virus from the seasonal um, flus that were spreading before, it would be unlikely for that to happen from the normal mutation of the virus among humans. And instead, it was likely to have uh, leapt from animals into humans. And similarly, the most sort of the predominant or theory for how the SARS coronavirus 2 um, or similarly to the SARS virus in 2003, how those began to spread in the human population is that they uh, jumped from an animal reservoir, animal host into humans. That's why humans don't have any immunity to it. And that's why it can spread basically so widely and quickly. Well, that's very interesting. Um, a lot of the uh, diseases that you mentioned, like such as the uh, SARS, um, and also um, other kind of diseases such as the like uh, H5N1 that you mentioned in the book, sounds really familiar for someone like me who grew up in South China. It's sort of almost like an you know from now and then you you will see that in TVs and newspapers and so on and so forth. Um, I find your book title is very eye-catching. Uh, it is called, quote, uh, China's Pandemic Epicenter, unquote. And I think these terms may resonate uh, with quite a lot of people's sentiments today, you know, particularly uh, concerning, for example, the, um, let's say, resurfaced uh, discussions about the origins of the COVID-19, uh, you know, currently in some of the uh, social media. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by uh, pandemic epicenter and where is it? So in the case of influenza, there's this term has a very specific history, which is why I introduced it in the book. Um, so as I mentioned, the 1957 influenza pandemic, um, based on research by Chinese virologists, was located. The origin was theoretically located somewhere in China. And similarly, the 1968 influenza pandemic, which came to be, was referred to actually as the Hong Kong influenza pandemic, was also theorized to probably have originated in, uh, in China somewhere. And um, what happened in the 1970s is a series of researchers began trying to understand better how it is that animal uh, hosts could give rise to these new influenza strains. 
And they basically theorized, began to look at something that would be like a kind of ecology of this virus. So what kind of interactions between animals and humans would lead to the emergence of these new virus strains. And what they came to think about was the uh, certain relationship between um, especially ducks, which are the primary reservoir for most of the influenza viruses. Um, and then the relationship between ducks, uh, pigs, chickens, and humans as being sort of the uh, ecological arrangement that might give rise to these new strains. And in particular, there was a, a researcher based at Hong Kong University named Kennedy Shortridge, who was working throughout the 1970s sampling viruses um, and studying them. So sampling them from mostly uh, domestic duck, domestic chicken, domestic pig, and some wild bird populations. And he was demonstrating that basically um, a very wide range of viruses are held in the domestic duck population. And based on this, he made the sort of um, hypothesis that um, uh, Southern China, and this is his term, could be an influenza epicenter. What he meant by that is that using sort of the idea of epicenter from um, you know, seismology and earthquakes as sort of the, the central point out of which this force radiates outwards, he was suggesting that, some, that because of certain ecological conditions of farming of ducks, chickens, and pigs uh, in Southern China, that that made it especially likely to be a sort of origin point for these pandemic flu viruses. Um, I have some other, uh, so I have some uh, sort of critical discussion of that in the book that I could go into more, um, but that would be the reason why that the, the China became a first um, identified as this with this term as influenza epicenter or pandemic epicenter. Well, that's um, quite intriguing. Uh, since uh, China become identified as the uh, epicenter, um, there's a term you also mentioned in your books that is called "quote geography of blame." Unquote. Um, I think this is a very. It seems that this term quite captures a lot of the things that is actually going on, you know, with the COVID-19 too. Uh, so can you say a little bit uh, about that term? What is the geography of blame? Yes, that's a very interesting question. So geography of blame is a term actually first introduced by the medical anthropologist Paul Farmer in his book about uh, uh, AIDS and HIV in Haiti. Uh, and he was arguing in that book that, um, well, he basically showed in that book that some of the early uh, scientific reports uh, about HIV and AIDS from US, so American-based uh, scientists and doctors were um, arguing that um, uh, Haiti was the possible or probable origin for HIV. And what he pointed out was that they were, they were utilizing what he calls like a folk model of Haitian culture as being sort of, uh, I mean, some of the, he says like that in this folk model, Haitians are like, you know, primitive people engaged in voodoo rites involving 
you know, throwing blood around and, uh, you know, eating corpses or things like that. And so sort of a very kind of vague and um, exoticized uh, rendition of Haitian culture was used as sort of a kind of evidence to uh, support the hypothesis that Haiti was uh, a the origin point of the HIV virus. When in fact, as Farmer shows that subsequent sort of epidemiological research and virological research and so on, was able to show that it's much more likely to have actually been the other way, that actually the, the, this virus probably spread from the United States, was in the United States first and then spread to Haiti. And so what he means by here, the geography of blame is sort of how certain, uh, there's a certain geographical distribution of blame and responsibility for these disease outbreaks and pandemics. And certainly, um, so I use that term as well to think about how China, by being identified as this, uh, as a pandemic epicenter, it creates this geography of blame in which uh, a certain place and a certain set of cultural practices maybe uh, becomes identified as responsible or uh, blameworthy for the, this, these outbreaks of disease. And so it's a certain logic of um, identifying responsibility uh, and accusation for uh, pandemic diseases. And um, sim I, so I, I, in, in some ways I try to do something similar to what Farmer was doing because I, um, as I was mentioning, um, this pe people like Kennedy Shortridge talking about influenza um, or, similar, or similarly in the response to COVID-19, where there was a lot of talk about, at least it's especially at the beginning, a lot of talk about certain like wet markets or uh, with sort of um, animals of all kinds being mixed together and these very sort of visceral descriptions um, that are, are uh, and then also talk about like consumption of wild animals or wild animal farming. What, what's, what's happening is how certain kinds of like folk models are sort of like um, vaguely, but vague cultural descriptions of these, of the people in these places are being mobilized as um, evidence within actually scientific discourses about these origins. And that, that leading to a lot of accusations and uh, blaming of people who engage in these practices. For example, wild animal farmers uh, as being one in the case of COVID-19 uh, pandemic. So, it, so in, in this case of the COVID-19 pandemic, you've had um, uh, this idea that this spread from wild animals and then it quickly leaping into this sort of these cult exoticized cultural descriptions about wild animal consumption. And the ultimate effect of this has been a lot of pressure put on. And then the, the eventually the government, uh, China's government actually has prohibited uh, farming of wild animals for food, which has put a huge number of people out of work. Um, and so there's some real effects of this geography of blame in terms of who gets, uh, who's getting um, uh, held responsible when in fact we have no evidence to say that any kind of wild animal farming actually played a real role in this outbreak. Well, that's really fascinating. Um, so 
actually, I get, have a, a good example here too uh, to sort of illustrate your point about how a scientific discussions become a, a social one and a political one. Actually, in Hong Kong last year, uh, quite at the beginning of the uh, COVID-19, um, one of the leading medical experts uh, came out uh, to the public and said uh, the reason why we have uh, COVID-19 was because of uh, the Chinese uh, backward habits of uh, wild animal consumption. Um, but you just mentioned uh, wild animal farmers. And I find that term very uh, interesting because farming wild animals sounds oxymoron. And if it's wild, then why was it farmed? Um, so I would like if uh, I would like to hear you to elaborate a little bit more about the the agriculture production side uh, of the story. You know how wild animals gets farmed. So then. What makes an animal still wild when it is farmed? And how is that, uh, as you said, in one way connected or not so connected actually to influenza? Yes. So in my fieldwork uh, related to the project on influenza, uh, one of the main, main areas that I was uh, looking at, in addition to scientists who were trying to contain the outbreak, was to actually look at um, the farmers who were um, being essentially held in some ways responsible and having to transform their practices in order to create, um, you know, more biosecurity and in and, and theory to uh, reduce the risk of disease emergence. And one of these groups that of farmers, so some of them are just conventional duck farmers, chicken farmers, but there are also these wild bird or wild goose farmers this became uh, a major focus for the influenza researchers um, because which for them, it was a huge surprise that this existed at this scale as well. And it was a major uh, focus of their interest because they were concerned with how a virus might go from a wild bird to a domestic bird. And so they imagined that um, this wild farmed wild bird might precisely be the kind of intermediary between the wild and the domestic birds. Um, so how did this practice come about? Um, and, and, and maybe one other thing I would say that though is that um, it uh, in the COVID-19 uh, situation where there's been this large backlash against consumption of wild animals, uh, some of it coming from uh, environmentalists, for example, um, what immediately you realize is that the complexity of, if you say, banning wild animals, the complexity that emerges about how do you define what counts as wild, uh, because such a large percentage of these, uh, the animals are actually farmed. Many of them, some of these species have been farmed for a very long time, others for much less amount of time. Some of these species are known to be risks of certain kinds of emerging diseases. So for example, civet cats, which was associated with the SARS outbreak in 2003, but many of these species are not really associated with any specific emerging disease. So there's a lot of difference in risk as well. And there's a lot of difference in how these animals are farmed and treated in the farming uh, production process. And so uh, just then, 
how did this come about this idea of farming wild animals um in for the for the majority of them such as like the wild swan geese that i farmers who i studied in in my book it was not something that is like a you know traditional practice so you know you mentioned the word that people often use like backward cultural practice or backward tradition backward traditions or in some of the Chinese uh, scientific scientists who criticized it, they described it as like vulgar practices um, or uncivilized. But in fact, uh, most of this wild animal farming really emerged very recently. It's not that it's it's not a traditional practice at, at this kind of scale. Um, and it's more of a response to the industrialization of conventional livestock farming. And so these, so as from the 1980s um, in China, as the livestock industry grew very rapidly um, and it grew in scale to the point that it's heavily dominated by uh, large industrial corporations. Um, small farmers still participate, but they participate usually through some kind of contract system to those industrial uh, farm conglomerates. Um, in that context, some farmers who sort of wanted to find some kind of way of differentiating themselves from that conventional market and maybe finding a more higher value item to produce began to look into these kind of unusual breeds and different varieties. Um, one, of the, one of these uh, areas being farming wild animals. Um, and for them then, as you mentioned, then a huge concern becomes how to uh, distinguish or uh, ensure that they are still like, can be qualified as wild while they're actually being farmed. So the consumer will consider them to be wild birds while they're coming from a farm. So there's a little bit of an oxymoronic thing, as you mentioned, but it, uh, so the, the, the trick is to identify some sort of key features of these varieties um, that might distinguish them from uh, conventional livestock. Um, so in the case of the wild geese, for example, they ensure that they're able to fly. They ensure that they're able to have certain visual appearances that are quite different um, from the conventional domestic goose. That's really interesting. Um, I grew up in, in South China. Um, this is kind of a wild uh, animal uh, as, you know, uh, delicacies on uh, tables uh, is sort of uh, quite common things, but I've never heard about this kind of story, um, you know, how you can actually farm them. Um, I'm very curious, uh, what motivated you to uh, take on this topic for your research? The, the beginning of, of looking at this topic um was actually I had done some earlier research in the United States uh, about uh, public health departments and how they were dealing with um, the threat of a pandemic disease um, or the threat of a yeah an emerging pandemic disease. Um, and this was around between maybe 2005, 2007 that I was doing that research. And one of the things that really struck me at the time, so a lot of that was funded, if, you're, if you might, it was funded at the time based also on an idea about um, bioterrorist attacks. So it was after the 9-11 uh, 
attack in the United States. And so the, the U.S. federal government was putting in a lot of money uh, to anti-terrorists, counter-terrorist kind of uh, initiatives. And so public health departments were taking some of this anti-terrorist funding uh, ostensibly to build systems to detect a bioterrorist attack. But when you talk to people working in public health, they were saying, you know, that there's no, it's not likely there's going to be a bioterrorist attack, but we are really concerned about a pandemic. Um, and they also would consistently say, we're especially, you know, they're, they're concerned about pandemics coming from China. Um, so that really intrigued me about why uh, China was being identified as this source and what some of the consequences of that might be. And so that's when I began to develop a, a sort of project about um, what does pandemic preparedness look like at the source in China, uh, this hypothetical source, and how that might be different from how pandemic preparedness looks like in a place like the United States, where they're considering it as something coming from outside. Um, among all the ethnographic materials that uh, you did not include uh, in the book, um, can you share with us uh, one or two uh, episodes that you would like to include in the book, but for various reasons that you could not? Yeah, that's an inter- that's an interesting question. So I was thinking about that. It's, it's hard to hard to know what 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 to say about that one, but uh, it's a very interesting question. I think one area that I wrote about more in my dissertation and then took out from the book that I kind of regret and I might like to write about more is related to the um, uh, the informal uh, unlicensed veterinarians at the local level uh, who treat the diseases of the ducks, chickens, and uh, quail, and geese, and other birds, which I call in the book, I use, I just call them duck doctors. Um, and they're a very interesting um, sort of figure because uh, it's the people engaged in that activity are not traditional again. So there's a long, very long tradition of veterinary medicine in China um, dating hundreds, thousands, maybe thousands, hundreds of years back at least. Uh, but it was not so focused on some of these diseases of ducks, chickens, and, and, and quails and things like that. Um, because uh, the scale of farming of those animals was not large, the value was not so great. So the, the, the focus of veterinary um, medicine traditionally was on um, horses, pigs, and other uh, cattle, larger, larger animals. Um, secondly, they're, they're interesting because what they're not a state, uh, veterinary service. And so what happened in China, um, from the 1950s to the 1970s, you had a huge growth in local level veterinary services provided by the state. Um, but after the 1980s, you had an interesting phenomenon where you had a huge growth in the industrial the huge growth in the um, production of animals, um, but you also had a decline of funding or withdrawal of funding for local veterinary services. Um, and so one result of that is that you had the emergence of a sort of uh, uh, independent um, veterinarians um, that I call duck doctors. And the, the thing that I've left out from the book, so I discussed this background in the book, but what I've left out is some of the more um, ethnographic sort of encounters between the duck doctors and farmers 
that are quite interesting. And what I, what I sort of discussed in my dissertation is how they really focus um, heavily on cultivating um, sort of friendships and relationships with the farmers. And that that's a really important basis for their work that might in some ways more important than becoming like a knowledge expert. And I think that, um, so what I think that that could be relevant is that on, by contrast, you have, let's say the, the state level and also the um, international agencies who are concerned about pandemic diseases, they focus very strongly on knowledge production, but they don't focus very much on cultivating relationships with the local farmers. Um, and so you have this kind of gap between these two approaches that I think is quite problematic because the, the expert science about influenza, they, they keep producing these you know, facts um, and knowledge, but without being able to develop these more close relationships to farmers, there's a kind of lack of understanding that is ultimately problematic in um, how to then effectively uh, contain and, and, and control uh, diseases. Well, that sounds like you have another fascinating project uh, to write on. I look forward to read about it. Um, thank you very much uh, for your time today. Uh, and thank you very much for sharing your research and insight with us. You are listening to Dr. Fernis talking about his book, Virulent Zones, Animal Disease and Global Health at China's Pandemic Epicenter, published by Duke University Press in 2020. Thank you for joining us today and hope to see you soon.